So Psalm chapter 130. If you have your Bibles, turn to the 130th Psalm. This summer we've been going through the the book of Psalms. Um, We've called it Summer in the Psalms. We've taken a break. Um, We are, Lord willing, planning in the fall to begin a study in the book of Daniel. So that Old Testament prophet, we will, in September, Lord willing, uh, start a study um, through the, the prophet Daniel. So you can, uh, if, you, if you would like, begin uh, reading ahead and preparing for that. But we're going to be in Psalm 130 this morning. And one of the reasons behind doing a series in the Psalms is to kind of familiarize ourselves with the vast array of emotions that are presented throughout the Bible, but specifically throughout the book of Psalms. And so as we continue to go through these psalms, hopefully you felt the ups and downs and the emotional roller coaster that's presented in the book of Psalms. The emotional state of the Christian is not a one-size-fits-all, right? The Christian life does not follow a cookie-cutter pattern. And the book of Psalms is, a, is an outlet of human emotions for, for those living life in a fallen world. As, as we mentioned several weeks ago, there's a quote by uh, one of the, the great theologians of our time or of of the church, and he says that an anatomy of all parts of the soul, that's that's how he defines the book of Psalms, an anatomy of all parts of the soul. And he continues, for there's not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. And so he lays out, and I think he's right, that in the book of Psalms, we see an anatomy of all parts of the soul And so no matter what you're feeling, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're experiencing, there is a psalm that that, that would give an expression to your emotions. We just got to read them and be familiar with them. So that's what we're trying to do through this summer study. And so as we turn to Psalm 130, we're going to find ourselves with the psalmist here. He's, he's calling out from the depths. And so as, as we turn to this psalm, he's, the, the psalmist is going to be overwhelmed. He's going to be discouraged. He's going to feel guilty and ashamed. And so as we begin, before we even read the psalm, a question to consider is whether or not you've ever been spiritually discouraged. Have you ever been discouraged spiritually before? Maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you've been there for for a few weeks or or months or years. Maybe you've known no other spiritual emotion than that of discouragement. Have you ever felt like the Lord is far from you? Have you ever been overwhelmed by the weight of your own sin, the guilt of your own failings? Have you been discouraged by your lack of spiritual growth? And if you have, and just just to be clear, I have been in all of those places before, sometimes at, at the same time. But Psalm 130 is a great place for the spiritually discouraged or apathetic. There is in this psalm great encouragement for the discouraged. There is in Psalm 30, as we'll see, hope in the depths. And so we'll read that in just a minute. But before we read it, let me just kind of set the stage. I want to draw your attention to to two things. Okay, then I'll read the psalm, we'll pray, and then we'll look through it. But, But first, as we read the psalm, you're going to notice that there is an ascent in the psalm itself. So this psalm finds itself in the in the in this book or this grouping of psalms that are called the Psalms of Ascent. So it's Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, and they're all grouped together. And it said that they were used as as the Israelites would go to the temple, they would ascend the hill to the temple in Jerusalem, and, and these are supposedly psalms that, that were part of their, their singing and their celebration as they ascended the temple. But more than that, we see in the psalm itself, there is an ascent. It's going to begin in the depths, but it's going to end at the heights. So there's an ascent within Psalm 30 itself, and that, that causes us or leads us to ask the question, well, what makes the difference? How does this ascent within the psalm happen? 
And the second thing to notice is that the Lord himself, the character of the covenant-keeping God, is what is center, front and center in this psalm. It's the Lord. He is going to be front and center in all of Psalm 130. And so the, the character of God is what leads to this ascent from verse 1 to verse 8. And so we'll see that. We'll see the character of God is a focus here. And then the final thing to notice before we read it is that as we get to verse 8, there is really no clear resolution in terms of deliverance from the depths in this psalm. So, so the psalmist does ascend from depths to heights, but his standing on the heights in verse 7 and 8 is a standing on the heights of, of hope. He's confident and assured that the Lord is going to answer him, but it's a hope-filled, confident waiting. So, so there's no clear resolution which is important to acknowledge because it means that regardless of the depths, there's always hope, right? He's not at the outside and say, hey, I was delivered. He's saying, I know I'm going to be delivered because God is faithful. And so there's always hope even in the depths for those who know the Lord. Because of who God is, there's always hope even in the depths. So let's read, hopefully you're there, Psalm 130. I'm going to read uh, all eight verses and then I'll pray for us and then we'll work through this psalm. So Psalm 130, beginning in verse 1, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption. And he, the Lord, will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray as, as we begin. Father, this is your word, and you have revealed yourself to us. And so I pray that the hope of this psalmist, which is found in your character and in your word, that, that hope would be realized in us, your people, today. And so give us, give us insight, give us wisdom, give us a love and fear of you. Uh, you are a God who hears and forgives and is faithful and redeems. And so I pray we'd be encouraged by you this morning. That's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, there, if you look at Psalm 130, we have four sections we're going to walk through. So, so basically couplets form each section. So, so first section, verses 1 and 2, we see God hears. And then second section, verses 3 and 4, we see God forgives. And then third, we'll see in verses 5 and 6, God is faithful. And then finally, the, the last two verses, there's a bit of a shift, but we still see God redeems as the last section. And, and every section, hopefully you'll, you'll see and notice that, that it's the character of God that is the focus of each section. And so we'll work through these sections together. So let's start there, verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, out of the depths I cry, O Lord, hear my voice, be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So as we said, the psalmist is in the depths here. That's where he begins. And, and here in, this, in Psalm 130, as in other places, the depths are symbolic of trouble. He's in trouble. And what the rest of the psalm makes clear, he's not in trouble because someone's chasing him. It's not his son who's coming after him for the, for the throne. Uh, the case here is that he's overwhelmed by his own sin and guilt. He's discouraged. He's depressed. He's overwhelmed because of his own sin. And we, we can say that. I think we can say that because the rest of the psalm is, is a focus on God's mercy and forgiveness. 
And so he's overwhelmed. He feels the weight of his sin. And so he's crying out of the depths because he knows he's guilty. And he knows that, 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 that he is in the depths because of his own doing. And so he cries out to the Lord because he knows he can't get rid of this weight. He can't get out of the, the depths on his own. He can't fix the problem. And so, so if, if you're anything like me, as a Christian, when we're in the depths, especially when it's in relation to our own sin, our own failing, our own squandering of opportunities or time, we are prone to think, I can fix this. I just got to double down on my efforts. I just got to go to church more. I got to be more faithful in my prayer or Bible reading. I, got, I can do this. That, that's how I'm prone to think, especially when I'm in the depths. But here, what the psalmist says is in the depths, oh Lord, deliver me. Hear my cries. He cries out because he knows he can't fix it. He can't deal with it on his own. Psalmist isn't trying to fix the problem. We find the psalmist calling out from the depths to the only one who can fix the problem. He's crying out to the Lord for mercy. Now just to be clear, let's miss the, the clear application of this psalm to us. This cry, the cry for mercy, is a cry from someone who knows the Lord. Right, so as I'm coming into Psalm 130, I'm, I know that, that the psalmist is someone who's in covenant relationship with the Lord. So even though he's been reconciled, he's in this covenant, unique relationship with the Lord, he still finds reason to cry out for mercy. And that's important because th- this is not a stranger to the Lord. Right? This is someone who's, who's crying for mercy, who knows the Lord. It's filled, the Bible is filled with people who know him, who still, though they know him, still call out for mercy. And it's crucial for us to understand because it means that the Christian doesn't outgrow the need for mercy. That's the point. If we think this is just someone who's a stranger to God who cries out for mercy, we may, we may be prone to think, well, I just need mercy at the, the outset of my Christian life. And the reality is we need mercy from start to finish. We never graduate from the need to cry to the Lord for mercy. And so the psalmist, in an act worthy of our imitation, from the depths of the spirit, he cries to the Lord. And in so doing... He, he, he does so because he assumes something about the Lord, doesn't he? Right? In his crying out, doesn't the psalmist assume something? I mean, boys and girls, think about a time when, when you're at your house and your mom or your dad, or your grandma or granddad, they're in another part of the house. Maybe they're just downstairs, maybe they're in the kitchen, maybe they're in another part of the house and, and you need help. Maybe, maybe you need to get help getting milk out of the refrigerator. Maybe you're in your room and it's so messy, you can't find your favorite piece of clothing. And so you need what only mom or dad can provide. What do you do? You scream, mom, dad, right? You cry out because they have something you need. And you scream, you yell across the house for your mom or dad because your mom or dad have ears and they can hear your cries for help. And so you cry out because you know they're going to hear you. Now, whether they help or not, that's another issue. But you cry out because you know that your mom and dad have ears to hear. And I I use that illustration simply to make the point that the psalmist cries out to the Lord because he knows the Lord has ears to hear him. He knows that the Lord can hear his cries. If the Lord could not hear, his pleas for mercy would be futile. However, what we see, the astounding thing, is that God is a God who hears. God hears the cries of his people. Can you believe that? I mean, that's amazing. God hears the cries of his people. Now, when the psalmist is crying out, he does so with an entire history of God's dealing with his people. He knows that God hears because of the history of God's dealings with Israel throughout the entire Old Testament. And the Old Testament is filled with God hearing the cries and the prayers of his people. Or to put it another way, God doesn't forget his people. 
I mean, one example, I had a whole list, but one example is, is Exodus 2, where the Israelites, remember, they, they're, they're enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt, and, and they just have the weight on them, and they can't, they can't bear up under the burden. And this is Exodus 2. I'm going to read verse 23 and 24. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, so they had favor with the Pharaoh, but then he dies, and the people of Israel groaned because they're slavery, and they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And this is verse 24. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and he knew. God hears the cries of his people. And so the psalmist here in verses 1 and 2 cries out because he knows that God hears. This is a particular privilege of God's people. And what's more, this is a cry in Psalm 130 that is from the depths so, so, so not only does God hear, but God hears from the depths. As one commentator put it, there are no depths known to the penitent from which they may not call out to the Lord. So I don't care how deep you are. I don't care how, how dark the depths. There are no depths known to those who call out to God from which God will not hear you. And that's good news. God hears. Brother, sister, a cry for mercy will never, and I mean never, fall on deaf ears. And we cry for mercy because God hears that's what we see in verses 1 and 2. But not only do we see that God hears, look next at verses 3 and 4. God forgives. So, so as we go from verse 2 to verse 3, verse 3 we see the issue that, that undermines our ability or our right or our privilege to cry out to God. So look at verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Now as we read that, we, we know the implied answer to that question, don't we? If, if the Lord marked iniquities, if the Lord kept a record of our sins, if the Lord considered or counted our sins, who could stand? The implied answer is no one. You see that the psalmist knows there is a chasm between God and even his redeemed people. There's a chasm, and one of the main reasons for the chasm, besides the fact that he's creator and, and we're created, is the fact that he is holy and without sin. God is holy, God is light, God is righteous, God is pure. We are not. We are sinful, we are broken, we are unrighteous. And so the question of verse 3, if God marked iniquities, who could stand? Who could be in right relationship with God if he held our sins against us? The answer to that rhetorical question is a resounding, no one could stand. No one could stand before the Lord who marked our iniquities, who dealt with us according to our sins. The reality is that no one can stand before the righteous and holy one. The psalmist couldn't stand. Going back, Adam couldn't stand. Abraham couldn't stand. Moses couldn't stand. David couldn't stand. Peter couldn't stand. Paul couldn't stand. I can't stand. You can't stand. No one can stand. And that's the tension there. The psalmist knows that, which raises a pretty significant issue. The psalmist says, I'm, he recognizes, I'm not worthy. I don't deserve to stand in the presence. My cries don't deserve to make their way to your ear. I'm guilty. I have no right to stand. Yet, here he is calling out to the Lord. How does he resolve that tension? What right does he have? Why does he call out knowing the Lord will hear? His answer is in verse 4. Right? His hope is based on verse 4. Verse 4 resolves the tension. It resolves the issue, doesn't it? If you alert to mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness. But with you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. This, this is the hope. God forgives. This is the, the character that the psalmist knows. God forgives. This is the foundational hope for those who would cry to the Lord for mercy. The, with the Lord there is steadfast love. 
In other words, the Lord doesn't mark iniquities. He doesn't deal with his people according to their sins. There's hope. And it's the forgiveness of God. It's the mercy of God that is the foundation of this hope. Cries of mercy are heard because God is the God who forgives. If it were not for mercy, no one could stand. But God is a forgiving God, which means that the psalmist can stand, which means that unworthy men and women like you and me, we can stand because with him there is forgiveness. Now notice, why does the psalmist say there is forgiveness with God? What's the purpose? With you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. In other words, you are a forgiving God in order that you might also be a feared God. Now that's an unusual connection. If if you weren't familiar with this psalm and I asked you to complete verse four, what what might you say if I said, "With, with God there's forgiveness in order that... I wonder how many would say, in order that he may be feared, if you weren't familiar with the psalm, that that, that doesn't go together in our minds. I mean, two other options that seem to make sense. With you, there's forgiveness that you might be loved. We think of being forgiven and and, and endearing our love. Or if you want to go with the fear theme, maybe you would say, with you, there's justice that you might be feared. In our minds, forgiveness of sins and fear of God don't seem to dwell comfortably together. But that's our problem, because in Psalm 130, verse 4, there's no issue with forgiveness and fear dwelling together. With you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And so why does he say that? I mean, I mean one way to get at the meaning is, that, well, what, what would be the opposite outcome of forgiveness than fear? Well, it, 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 the opposite would be, with you, there's forgiveness that you may be taken for granted, or with you, there's forgiveness that you might be taken advantage of. With you, there's forgiveness of sin so that you might not be taken seriously. These are opposites. So, so he doesn't mean those. He means the opposite of those. With you, there's forgiveness that you may be feared. His point is that the forgiveness of God is meant to produce something, and that's not a casual or nonchalant or apathetic attitude towards the God who forgives. We, we just have to let it stand. Forgiveness, the forgiveness of God generates a fear of God. And I think we could even say, if you don't fear God, you don't understand his forgiveness. But that's the connection he makes in verse 4. The two things work in unison and are directly connected. Now, there's a lot of examples of this that that you can find. One I found by by a guy named Octavius Wenzel. He's a pastor. He was around the same time of of Spurgeon and a guy named J.C. Ryle. So Octavius Wenzel, I'm going to read his illustration. I I think this this gives kind of a, a, it helps us understand uh, what what the meaning is here. So so listen to this example to to illustrate the, the healthy fear and how forgiveness generates fear. He writes, quote, a soldier was brought before his commanding officer for a misdemeanor frequently committed and as frequently punished. He had been tried, flogged, and imprisoned, but imperative and stern as military discipline is all to no purpose. He was an old and incorrigible offender whom no threats could dismay and no infliction reform. So it doesn't work. He's punished and punished and punished. As the officer was about to repeat his punishment, The sergeant stepped forward and apologizing for the liberty he took, he said, sir, there's one thing which has never been done with him yet. What is that? Inquired the officer. He has never been forgiven. Surprised at the suggestion and yet struck with its force, the officer meditated for a moment, then ordered the culprit before him. What have you to say to the charge? Nothing, sir, only I am sorry for what I've done. Well, We have decided to inflict no punishment on this occasion, but to try what forgiveness will do. The criminal, struck dumb with astonishment, burst into tears and sobbed like a child. And what was the effect? 
From that moment, he was another and a changed man altogether, no longer the inveterate and hardened offender, a plague to his regiment and dishonor to the service. Instead, he became one of the most well-behaved and orderly men that ever wore the uniform or bore the standard of his sovereign. Forgiven, he became loyal and obedient, respect for military rule and the fear of dishonoring the service and degrading himself henceforth became to him a law and a shield." And Winslow goes on to conclude, oh, what a corrective of sin, what a motivation to fear, what an incentive to obedience is God's forgiveness. And so it is, it is the forgiveness that produced a fear, a, a reverent obedience to what, what was the penalty. So God's forgiveness produces a fear among his people. And this fear, it's what leads to a faithful and obedient worship. That, that's, that's what's behind fear. There's forgiveness that we may worship God and obey God and live for him. And so, so that means if the forgiveness of God emboldens you to continue in sin, then you miss the point and you really probably don't know God. Like God is merciful and God forgives, but the result of forgiveness is a healthy fear and worship and obedience of the Lord. But the Lord is forgiveness that he might be feared. To know the Lord is to fear the Lord. But we see in the psalm, not only does God hear, not only does God forgive, but look there, verses five and six, God is faithful. So verse five and six, basing his confidence on the character of God in forgiving sin, the psalmist then transitions to begin waiting patiently for the Lord. So verse five, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. It's not a typo in your Bible. You actually repeats the same phrase a second time, more than watchmen for the morning. And so here in verse five and six, I, 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 titled, I headed, titled this heading, God is faithful because he's waiting, but he's waiting with hope. He's cried out. He knows that God is merciful. He knows that God forgives. And so all that's left for him to do is to wait for the Lord. And so he waits, his soul waits, and he's waiting eagerly, expectantly. And what's he waiting for? Verse five, my soul waits for the Lord and in his word, I hope. So, so this waiting is hope-filled waiting and it's hope-filled waiting because yes, he knows the Lord is faithful and he knows that with the Lord is forgiveness, but also according to verse five, he hopes in the word of the Lord. So in your word, I hope. So what's the psalmist saying? He doesn't have the New Testament. He doesn't have, he doesn't have the, the Bible he can open up. So what, what does he mean when he says, I hope in the word of the Lord? If you think about the context here, as a member of the Old Covenant community, he's probably thinking of, of the, the authoritative word that would come to the people from the mouth of the priest at, at the offerings. So they're sacrificing and say, the Lord has, has, has put your sin on the ram and sent it into the wilderness. And so the priest is the authoritative word from the Lord saying, your sins are forgiven, they're paid for by another. And so you can imagine if, if, if the throng of Israel is, 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 is rejoicing and singing this psalm on the way to the temple, they're waiting for the Lord. They're, they're hoping in his word that they know the priest is going to issue when they get there. And so it's, he's waiting for the Lord to issue the final word regarding his sin and, and iniquities. He knows that because of what he's just said, that with God there is forgiveness. And so he knows the character of God. So he cried out, he confessed his need for mercy, and he knows that God's going to respond. And so he's just waiting. And he knows that God is faithful. And so that's why he, whether the resolution comes immediately or not, he knows that it's coming because he knows God. And so he describes the waiting in verse six, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. It's not, it's not an uncertainty or a cautious optimism. He's not saying, well, I hope the Lord delivers. 
I, I hope it gets here. I hope I get redemption. He knows it's coming. There's confidence and assurance. He waits because he knows the Lord is going to respond. He knows that the Lord is faithful. And this is seen even further in verse 6 when he compares himself to a watchman who's waiting for the morning. And so the watchmen, they were assigned to guard the city during the night watches. And the, the watchman would protect the city from, from sudden attacks and intruders. So, so the whole city sleeps and the watchman keeps watch to protect everyone. So the whole city is trusting in that man to keep them safe. And the reality is at any moment, anyone could attack. And so the watchman kept watch on the city. And so because of that weight, because of that responsibility, he would long for the morning. He would long, it's like you're on a long drive. You're like, I just want to get there. I just want to get there. I'm so tired. I just want to get there. I want to get my family there safe. But that's the watchman waiting because when the sun comes up, his shift is over. And so he's longing for the sun. He's longing for daybreak. And so the psalmist says, I'm waiting for the Lord more than that. And I'm expectantly waiting. He's longing for relief from the depths, but he knows only the Lord can bring that. So he's waiting for the Lord. And he knows that the Lord is faithful. I mean, think about the comparison that he made. I mean, was there ever a watchman whose shift wasn't ended by the coming dawn? Every night, no matter how hard it got, no matter how dark it was, no matter how tired the watchman was, he knew if he waited long enough, the sun was going to rise. And no watchman's hope in the sun was ever disappointed. The sun always eventually rose again. And so the psalmist knows, just as the morning light is guaranteed each and every day, so the Lord's going to come to my aid. And so he's waiting. He's expectantly waiting for the Lord to respond. And then finally, look at verse 7 and 8. Not only is the Lord faithful, but we see verse 7 and 8 that God redeems. So, so remember, there's, there's no resolution. He hasn't been delivered. All of a sudden, so now verse 7, he's like, okay, now I'm, I'm free. No, he's, he's beheld the character, the nature of God, and he says, okay, there's hope for me because God is faithful and he's going to deliver me. Therefore, Israel, verse 7, hope in the Lord. He doesn't say, hey, look where I've come from, rags to riches. You guys can be just like me. Just put your hope in God and he's going to fix everything. No, he hasn't been delivered. At least there's no, there's no hint that he's been delivered at this point. Verse 7, he simply shifts from, from his, his inward looking and, and consideration. And then he looks outward and says, oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there's steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will, verse 8, redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And so at the beginning, the psalmist is crying to the Lord from the depths, and after recognizing forgiveness and mercy, after going from the depths of despair to the heights of hope because of the character of God, he wants all of Israel to, to know and to be where he is. Hope in the Lord, Israel. The Lord hears, the Lord forgives, the Lord is going to redeem us. All Israel, you have reason for hope. And so the psalmist's personal hope-giving reflections on God lead him to encourage others to do the same thing. And we see in these verses the climax of his hope. We see the ultimate hope of the psalmist. God is going to redeem Israel. The iniquity problem is going to be dealt with. Israel can hope in the Lord, the psalmist says, for with him there is steadfast love and plentiful redemption. This is the hope of Psalm 130. God will redeem his people and remember their sins no more. And so the psalmist, this personal reflection could not be contained. He wanted all of his fellow Israelites to hear and know the hope that comes from God. And here's where the really great news comes in for us. Because what the psalmist saw as a, a future redemption, we know most clearly as an already accomplished redemption, don't we? So when you read verse 8, he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Hopefully your mind goes straight to the cross. 
there is hope. There's an already accomplished redemption. So there's a future redemption in verse 8 that the psalmist references. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And the reality is a lot has happened between the time of Psalm 130 and now. What he longed for, we have encountered. The divine redeemer of Israel has come. And we, we've sung about him, and we've remembered him, and we've prayed to him, and we've worshipped him already this morning. We know that this redemption that the psalmist longed for has been accomplished by Jesus Christ. In him, we have redemption. In him, we have the forgiveness of sins. We know that, that in Psalm 130, every characteristic of the Lord that's highlighted in the psalm, right, which we see there's lots, God's character is on display, but every characteristic of the Lord on display in Psalm 30 finds its clearest and fullest revelation in the person and work of Christ, our Redeemer. And so every good thing, every worshipful, everything that we might adore and praise about God and his character in Psalm 130, we can look to Jesus and see them magnified. He spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but he's spoken to us in his son. Jesus is the full revelation of God. We know in full what the psalmist only knew in part. We know that Christ was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. We know that upon Christ was the chastisement that has brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We recognize that we all like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned everyone to his own way and that the Lord has laid on Christ the iniquities of us all. And so the person of Christ, the Redeemer of Israel, is the foundation of all hope. In him, we see the mercy of God made manifest. The good news for us is that Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ has been raised. And through him, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of God's grace. Christ is the beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. In fact, in Luke chapter 2, this was the cry of Zechariah, who was the father of John the Baptist. When, when he recognizes what God is doing, he says, Blessed be the Lord, of, the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. So Zechariah knew with, with the appearance of his son as the forerunner and the Messiah coming not long after that, that God was redeeming his people. That's what Jesus has done. The forgiveness of sins that's come to us through Jesus Christ is the clearest revelation of God's mercy to us. And that is reason for great hope. And so if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. And I just want to address the, 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 the issue which is that, that if you're apart from Christ, if, you have, if, if you're not trusting in Jesus, that you are still a stranger to God's mercy. You can only know God through faith in his son. And so everything that, that, that we see about who God is and his mercy, you're still removed from that until you call out to God for mercy. The good news is he has ears to hear because he sent Christ. And so through him, through Christ, God hears cries for mercy. And so friend, just hear me this morning. You are in need of mercy. You cannot stand before the Lord. You have no hope apart from God's mercy. You will one day have to give an account for all that you've said and done. You will one day stand before him. We already established that no one can stand. And so on that day, when you have to give an account, your only hope your only hope to stand is what's been provided for you in the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, friend, let me just tell you, God is merciful. He can hear your cry. With him, there's forgiveness of sins. God is faithful, 
and just, and he will forgive you your sins if you cry out to him and, and humble yourself and come to him through faith in Jesus. God has followed through on his promise to redeem by sending his son. And so that offer is there for you. Would you turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus? There's hope for you. You can know the mercy of God through him. My hope, our hope, is that you might know the mercy and forgiveness that comes only through Christ. But if you're here this morning and you do know Christ, if you've come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, we have hope always in the depths. We always, brother, sister, we have reason to cry out for mercy even in the depths because we know that with God there is forgiveness. And so we can be encouraged no matter what what you're going through. There's hope for you because of who God is. Not because the, the prospect of changing circumstances, but because the Lord whom you know. And last word of application, just, just for us believers, there, there is still a longing in us, isn't there? We still find ourselves longing for a total and complete redemption of sins, don't we? So, so yes, redemption has come in Jesus Christ, but we're still waiting, right? We're still longing. We sing about it in our second song. We're still longing for the glorious day when he comes back. And so even for the Christian, there's still a sense in which we, we join the psalmist in waiting for full and complete redemption from our sins, I mean, I don't know about you, but, but I long for the day when I'll be delivered completely from this body of death. I long for the day when my flesh won't wage war and, and I won't be driven to do what I don't want to do and, and not be able to do what I want to do. Right? I long to be delivered and that's not coming until Christ returns. And so for the believer, we're still longing for the second coming because when, that, when he appears, when that day comes, our, our redemption will be complete, fulfilled, lacking nothing, and we will be raised and, and be given resurrection bodies if we're still here in a, in a blink of an eye. And we will not fight against sin anymore. We will be delivered from the influence and very presence of sin. And so, so we hope, we long for the day, we anticipate the day when it will be said that God has redeemed Israel from all his iniquities, and that reality will be complete fulfilled, and fully realized. And so we long for that day, we wait for that day, we hope for that day, but we, we hope, notice, because we know the character of the Lord who's promised it. We're not just hopefully optimistic about that day coming. We know it's coming. It's coming. And we long for it, and we eagerly await it, just as surely as Christ appeared the first time to deal with sins by sacrifice of himself, he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so we long for that day because we know God who's promised it. You see, the cry from the depths that marked the beginning of the psalm was transformed into confident hope by the end. And the difference was that he remembered the Lord. It was the Lord and his mercy that transformed a cry from the depths into a trumpet of hope from the heights. Let's pray as we close.